Thank you very much. Okay, let's start uh, with the pathophysiology, neurology. Okay, this of course has to be studied together with what you learn in PD and clinical medicine. Okay, uh, today we are going to have an introduction okay, to the disorders of the brain, spinal cord, okay, peripheral nerves, system that uh, is coordinating, integrating many functions, okay, all of the, all of the afferent information that we receive through the senses, okay, and creating responses, okay, normally motor responses. And there are many advances in neurology, okay, in uh, all of these uh, brain sciences, neurosciences, that helps us understand better how the brain works, and of course the diseases that we may have, all of the uh, alterations. And this is in part thanks to the use of the functional MRI. Okay, functional MRI simply tells us when someone is thinking about something or remembering something or doing something or experiencing any sensation, where in the, in the brain we have more activity. Functional MRI measures where blood is concentrated, the areas that have more active metabolism. That gives us an idea of what area is working, but of course doesn't tell us how these things happen. Okay, if you are, if you are, uh, for example, you see a building and you see that in the third floor uh, there is light in one house. Well, you know that there is light, but you don't know if the person is awake or is, uh, or there is a party or what, what is there. Okay, we know where the light is, but we don't know what's going on there. But we have an idea. Okay, of. Uh, how this works is uh, very complex, okay, because studying, for example, the mental processing of people and understanding certain uh, of the diseases that we call mental diseases is complicated, okay. And sometimes people have different conditions at the same time, okay. Someone has, for example, a personality disorder and they may have also a neurological disease or uh, other type of condition, so it's complicated to understand how the brain works. Okay, so there are many conditions that are classified and we refer them uh, to the neurologists, are classified as neurological diseases when there are structural diseases, when there are demonstrated uh, issues that the neurologists have to take care of. And some conditions are classified as psychiatric diseases, okay, because we don't find anything that uh, belongs to neurology. We don't think a neurologist can do anything about that. We simply treat the symptoms that are disturbing. Uh, many of these conditions, maybe one day we discover why they occur, and they will belong to neurology rather than psychiatry. But right now, they are in the field of psychiatry, which is complicated. Okay, when you study, for example, cardiology, uh, you have uh, very easy ways of doing a diagnosis by using EKGs, enzymes. But when someone has a mental illness, a psychiatric condition, what are we going to do? We can do a, a biopsy of the brain. We can do an ultrasound of the brain. There are no markers that tells us what disease the patient has. We simply have to 
believe what the patient says and put together different things. And give a diagnosis, which is a label, okay, a label that sometimes has implications, legal implications, and also, uh, in many cases, patients don't feel well with the label that we give them, and that's why they don't want, or there is so much taboo about going to a psychiatrist, a psychologist, and for example, think, uh, thinking that in the, in the name major depressive disorder. And someone just the word major is like scary, okay? It's like having a cancer, a, a mental cancer, or something like that. And this creates a lot of taboo, okay? And for that reason, many of these names are changing, okay? The, uh, it's not because we want to hide the condition, it's simply because we want to make the diagnosis, okay, more acceptable, okay, for the patients. Okay, that in many cases, a, a diagnosis of this type may even implicate that the patients lose their job, lose their kids, okay? They, sometimes they may, se may be separated from their family, and they are not believed at all when they say something. Oh, don't believe, don't believe uh, this person because has a mental problem. So that has a lot of implications. Okay, so all of these conditions, thank you, all of these conditions, uh, will have different manifestations, milder or more severe, not only physical, also uh, talking about the social relationships of the person, okay? And many of them start by alterations in the, at the molecular level. Many of them start very early during the embryonic or fetal life. For example, uh, schizophrenia, autism, okay? There are moments during the fetal development in which there are some steps that maybe don't occur very well, and people have either too many connections or too little, too few connections, and people develop autism or schizophrenia later in life. Okay, so there are many things that we have to understand still, and that's why these people are studying and doing so much research. So we are gonna try to understand these conditions, okay? They may affect uh, different structures of the central nervous system, brain or spinal cord, or sometimes the, the peripheral nerves or components of the organs, like myelin, okay? There are conditions in which myelin is destroyed, or sometimes there are uh, problems affecting the neuromuscular junction, okay? So we have to be able to localize where the problem is, okay? First recognize the problem, then localize the problem, and if possible, try to fix, okay, or to alleviate the symptoms. So when we approach the patient with neurological disorders, and when we approach a multiple choice question, uh, one big step is to differentiate what is a generalized neurologic disorder versus what is a focal neurologic deficit, okay? And that gives us a big idea of what the patient might have, okay? For example, strokes, hemorrhagic or ischemic strokes, uh, different local lesions like a hematoma in one part of the brain or a tumor in one part of the spinal cord or the brain or a trauma, for example, uh, producing some inflammation, etc. bleeding, different types of intracranial bleeding will typically manifest with focal neurologic deficit in one part of the body, okay? Or maybe in uh, both 
sides of the body, but they will be asymmetric. For example, uh, loss of the muscle strength in the right side and maybe sensory in the left side. Okay, or uh, maybe only the legs affected, not the upper part of the body, or maybe more the face and the arms rather than the legs. Okay, things that are asymmetric. Now, when we have a global deficit, okay, something that is bilateral, something that is symmetric, then we talk about generalized neurologic deficits. Okay, and that gives us at least an idea of where we have to start. Okay, when someone has a generalized deficit or a global deficit, we recognize it because there is alteration in the level of consciousness. Maybe simple confusion, maybe a pre-syncope, near fainting, or maybe a syncope, okay, when there is a global hypoperfusion to the brain that patients recover spontaneously, or may have may, may be in coma. Okay, there are different levels of coma. Okay, you have the Glasgow coma scale to determine if the deficit is mild, is moderate, or is severe. Okay, and there are some terms that we typically use, like lethargy, stupor, okay, like different uh, obtundation, okay, coma to tell or to try to express how deep the coma is. And also systemic disorders, okay, someone with, for example, hepatic encephalopathy or uh, uremic syndrome or someone who is poisoned by different toxins, uh, someone, someone who is in coma due to diabetic ketoacidosis or hyperosmolar hyperosmotic state or because of hyponatremia or any other uh, systemic condition, hypoxemia, hypoglycemia, okay, uh, in, uh, adrenal insufficiency, severe hypothyroidism, all of these things may produce coma. So we have to identify what's the etiology, what is the process, so we can reverse it, okay? The same thing with ischemia, uh, hypoperfusion of the brain, in a severe hypotension, different things that are systemic, okay, will produce a generalized neurologic deficit. So when we uh, approach a, a differential diagnosis, besides separating what is focal and what is generalized, okay, it's a good idea to follow uh, different mnemonics that exist or that to help our memory. Okay, one of the most commonly used mnemonics is the word vindicate. Okay, vindicate is that it has the starting letters of vascular, infectious, neoplastic, etc. Okay, and there you have some of the common etiologies that may produce different types of neurologic manifestations, okay, different ischemic or hemorrhagic strokes or vascular malformations that people may have in the brain or spinal cord. Infectious, we have encephalitis, meningitis, sepsis. Uh, that sepsis that may be uh, not in the brain, maybe as a result of someone having, for example, gangrene or some septic uh, uh, area in the body, pneumonia or GI uh, infection. And we have neoplastic uh, diseases, brain tumor that can be a primary brain tumor, okay, a tumor that arises in the brain or simply a metastasis from other place. Okay. And the manifestations, for example, sometimes, you know, there is an overlap. If someone has a tumor, small mass, that is growing in the brain, they're likely to have focal neurologic deficits, 
depending on what area of the brain the tumor is affecting. Okay, if this is in the motor cortex, they are gonna have a hemiparesis contralaterally. If this is in the sensory cortex, they may have some sensory deficits. Okay, if this is in the, in the cerebellum, will produce ataxia. But sometimes the tumors grow and the mass starts compressing the rest of the brain. The mass produces inflammation, edema. And when this edema occurs, then people may progress to having a more generalized deficit. But we are gonna see the progression. Patient started, let's say, six months ago with hemiparesis on the left side. And then the patient started getting worse, 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 headache. And the patient now is in coma, okay, after uh, the development of this uh, brain edema. So we have to pay attention to the history, the development of the condition. Okay. Besides this, there are some iatrogenic uh, causes and sometimes intoxication, that is for the eye. We have the degenerative disorders, Alzheimer's, Huntington, different types of dementias that sometimes uh, these are the conditions that in the past belonged to the uh, psychiatry and we didn't know they were the basis for them. Okay, now they belong more to the neuro neurology. Okay, and I say psychiatry, but if you go back in time, not even psychiatrists, there were exorcists, the ones who used to take care of these patients and many of them for sure were burnt because they were possessed or something. Okay, now we burn them in another way. Okay, we burn them by isolating them and these things that you know. There's different ways of burning people. And well, congenital malformations, okay, some uh, diseases like epilepsy that uh, may be congenital or may be acquired depending on the cause. Then we have autoimmune disorders lupus, for example, multiple sclerosis, okay, may affect the, the brain, okay, traumatic injuries, and, well, different endocrine metabolic disorders that you have studied before, uh, and some others that you will study that may produce uh, neurologic deficits, like hypoglycemia, hepatic failure, kidney failure, Okay, when you approach neurology, it is important to go back to the anatomy. Okay, I put this slide simply for you to uh, have it in the same PowerPoint. Okay, but it's important that you go if you need uh, further information about the anatomy. And we are going to be covering more about the anatomy when we go to the part of strokes. Okay, because we need to include the different blood vessels that supply blood to the, these different areas, okay, to differentiate what, for example, occlusion of what artery will produce what type of stroke. Okay, for now just remember what are the main areas of the brain and what is their function. For example, the frontal lobe, in the frontal lobe we have different areas that regulate our personality, learning, memory, our mood, Okay, how we project and we relate to other people, our decision-making, judgment. Okay, also in the posterior part of the frontal lobe, we have the motor cortex, the primary motor cortex. Okay, in the lower part of the primary motor cortex, we have an area okay, that has to do with 
expressive language. Okay, language has different components. We have to listen, we have to interpret that, that is receptive, and then we have to process and give a response. Doesn't have to be spoken language. We can talk to ourselves. Okay, that is expressive language. It's a kind of a motor part of language, so that is regulated in the lower part of this motor cortex. In the parietal lobe, okay, in the anterior part, very close to the motor cortex, we have the sensory cortex. Okay, in the lower part of this sensory cortex, we have the area of language that has to do with receptive language. That is the Wernicke's area. Helps us understand what someone says. Okay, the, uh, and then these areas communicate with each other. Okay, there is a, a little uh, bundle of actions okay, that allows the communication between receptive and expressive. Okay, and that's why you do all these, or when you ask the three words, for example, for the patient to repeat, you are assessing if they understand and they give a proper response. Okay, you are looking at the functioning of these areas. Now, we also have there the, uh, the rest of the parietal lobe and the occipital lobe, they have to do with visual information. Okay, the primary visual cortex is in the occipital lobe. Okay, that's very close to the area of the parietal lobe. That is the visual association area. Okay, that processes, vision is processed when we are actively looking at something we use almost 70% of the brain cortex. So we have almost all the, re the real estate there dedicated to processing vision. Okay, that's why sometimes uh, when we want to use another sense, for example, tactile, when we want to touch something, it's better to close the eyes. So when we close the eyes, we remove or we stop using all this huge amount of brain cortex for processing vision and we can dedicate more to tactile information. For example, if you're learning to do your physical exam, you're trying to palpate the liver, trying to palpate something, and you, well, I don't feel anything. It's hard for me to, to do. Well, close your eyes, and probably you are gonna get a better sense of that. <coughs> so below the occipital, uh, you can see there the cerebellum. Uh, it's not only for balancing and coordination, Cerebellum has to do a lot with memory and learning. Okay, there are many functions of the cere cerebellum that we still need to discover. And then we have under this cortex, we have different structures. The basal ganglia, thalamus, hypothalamus, okay, different other uh, structures that are called subcortical structures that also participate in many processes of um, coordination of the muscles, learning, memory, emotions, many different things. Okay, in the temporal lobe, we have the auditory cortex, and also we have a very important part that is the hippocampus, okay, the area that processes and regulates memory, and also decides what is important and should be sent to the long-term memory, important in learning. And well, also there is a system of different nuclei that is called the limbic system, Okay, the limbic system uh, has to do more with uh, different involuntary things, emotions, learning, different activities that have to do with fear and protection, survival of the person. 
and also how we relate to each other, how we react to different things. Okay, none of these areas works alone. Okay, all of these areas are connected, and depending on how much these areas are working, inhibition or stimulation, different neurotransmitters, balance between neurotransmitters and neuromodulators, things are going to work in one way or another. And lastly, we have to mention the brain stem. Okay, contains the midbrain, the pons, the medulla, where we have important vital centers, cardiovascular, respiratory, vomiting, uh, regulation of different uh, vital functions. And we have the reticular activating system. Reticular activating system is a collection of nuclei that participates in maintaining us awake. Okay, when we go to sleep at night, we close the eyes, we turn off the light, and then we have a change in all of the neurotransmitters in the brain. We have many inhibitory neurotransmitters that turn off everything. Okay, and the only thing that will stay uh, alert, let's say, are a series of nuclei that are simply filtering all the information that enters or could enter in the brain. If these nuclei consider that some stimulus is important, they are going to stop the inhibition and they are going to release excitatory neurotransmitters, glutamine, and we are going to wake up. Okay, maybe we are sleeping at night and there is uh, the, a clock ticking, there is a cat uh, there, there are someone walking, someone with the TV there, and we don't wake up. And maybe if you are a mother or a father and the kid cries a little bit, you wake up. Okay, because that reticular activating system is selecting what information is important. If there is any abnormality in this reticular activating system, everything is going to be important and we are going to wake up all the time. And that explains many of the difficulties with sleeping that people may have. So this diagram shows an overview okay, of these uh, conditions that we are going to be studying. Okay, we have on the outer part of the brain, the cortex, okay, where we have different areas with different functions, and almost everything that happens there is brought to consciousness. So we may be aware of them. Okay, then we have subcortical structures, basal ganglia, cerebellum, thalamus, okay, and different other structures. What occurs there is not brought to consciousness. We are not aware. However, we might feel certain, uh, certain feelings, just to, to say in some way, that may express the functioning of those uh, basal ganglia, for example, fear or simply a well-being or any other type of good or bad sensation, okay? We are not gonna say, oh, I'm feeling that my, uh, this ganglion is, is producing serotonin. I'm not, we, we are not aware of that, but to simply say we feel well, we feel bad, okay? Then we have the brainstem with the reticular formation. We are gonna see the importance of that very soon, okay? All the uh, neurons that start there in the cortex, motor neurons, for example, travel in between the subcortical structures, okay, and they go down the reticular formation. The brain stem, some of them are gonna make synapses with other neurons that go to the cranial nerves, some of them go down to the spinal cord. And then they are gonna cross, in the, in the reticular formation, they are gonna cross, for example, the motor neurons, 
Okay, and they are gonna uh, make a synapsis with another motor neuron there, okay, in that will stimulate a muscle in what we call the neuromuscular junction. Okay, notice that the same happens for the cranial nerves and the spinal nerves. Now, let's take a look at the blue uh, uh, part there. For example, if there is a lesion, and this is simply an overview, this doesn't try to cover everything that we are going to start. If there is a lesion in a cortical structure, for example, a motor cortex, the outcome for the clinical manifestations are going to be a contralateral focal sign, okay, weakness, paralysis, okay, that uh, belong, we are going to study that later in more detail, uh, or appear as upper motor neuron signs. Okay, we are going to see the difference between upper motor neuron and lower motor neuron uh, clinical uh, focal manifestations. Okay, also people may have speech disorders, where nitis or brocas, aphasia, okay, or may have neglection. Depending on where the stroke, for example, is occurring, people who are right-handed typically their dominant brain or hemisphere of the brain is the left hemisphere, typically, in most cases. So if they have a stroke affecting the left hemisphere, they typically have aphasia. They either don't understand language or, don't, or are unable to produce language. Now, if the stroke is in the right side, they are not going to have any uh, speech problems. What they are going to have is neglection. So they neglect one part of the visual field, and they don't have any issue with, uh, with vision. You present them, okay, what is this, or what is, oh, this is this, this is that. But if you don't ask them, if you don't actively present it to them, they may not see anything that is there. And this patient may not shave, for example, the left side of the face, okay, or simply may not recognize that a person is there, okay, simply neglect that part of the visual field. Now, what about the subcortical structures? Uh, strokes affecting the basal ganglia, cerebellum. These are going to manifest with motor coordination problems, uh, uh, different types of signs that we call dyskinesias. Can be hypokinesia or hyperkinesia. Okay, tremors, ataxia, and also some mood disorders, cognitive disorders. And then we have the brainstem. Notice that in the brainstem, we have all the axons that come from both sides of the brain. Okay, they meet there in a very small structure. Okay, and also we have there the reticular activating system. So when you have a lesion there, typically we are going to have generalized deficits, for example, loss of consciousness, coma. Okay, or we are going to have some... Uh, more focal disorders when a tiny area, for example, a nucleus of the peripheral nerves or of these cranial nerves is affected. So depending on the size or the amount of the injury or the inflammation there, we may have either generalized or focal neurologic deficits. Okay. Also, we have there the autonomic centers, so problems with the respiration, problems with the control of the blood pressure, heart rate, etc may appear to. Then we have the spinal cord lesions there will uh, present differently depending on 
the degree and the level of the spinal cord injury. If someone has an injury, for example, in, at the level of C2, that is a very dangerous thing because that's very close to the brain stem. And when you have an injury in the spinal cord, typically the edema, the inflammation, goes two levels above and two levels below the lesion. So if the lesion is at C2, the inflammation is going to go up and it's going to affect the brain stem. Okay, now if the lesion is below, for example, C6, then we are going to have problems from that level and below, affecting arms, legs. Okay? Also, if the lesion is, for example, at C5, C4, we are going to affect the neurons that uh, send fibers to the phrenic nerve. And people may have problems in the regulation of the diaphragm. If the lesion is below that level, let's say at T5, now the arms are not going to be affected, but only the legs. And also, the manifestations are going to depend on if the section is total or there is a partial section. Okay, for example, we affect only the dorsal part of the spinal cord. We are going to damage the actions that carry proprioception, vibration, and fine touch. Okay, but if we damage the anterior part of the spinal cord only, that carries only motor fibers. So there is going to be muscle weakness, but no sensory deficit. Okay, if it's lateral, well, lateral will, it will depend on what side is. We're going to have bilateral uh, uh, findings, but asymmetric. Okay, we may have affected, for example, temperature and pain in one side of the body and proprioception, vibration, and fine touch in the other side of the body. And that is what we call brown sequard syndrome. So notice how different presentations. And then, well, if the cranial nerves uh, or spinal nerves, it depends on where the lesion is. Okay, we may have the radiculopathies if the root of the nerve is affected. Okay, or there may be, for example, diseases affecting the neuromuscular junction, myasthenia gravis, Lambert-Eaton syndrome. Okay, and also we may have simply demyelination of the nerves, as it happens in the Guillain-Barré syndrome, different conditions. Okay, and when we have the nerve affected, notice that the signs are going to be ipsilateral, okay, and are going to be signs that clinically are classified as lower motor neuron signs, okay, because there are two motor neurons. One, the upper motor neuron that goes from the primary motor cortex to the spinal cord, anterior horn, and then we have the lower motor neuron that arises from this anterior horn of the spinal cord to make synapses with the muscle. So the manifestations are going to be different. Upper motor neuron lesions typically produce spasticity, okay, hypertonic muscles, Babinski, hyperreflexia, while lower motor neuron lesions produce the contrary, hypotonicity, flaccid paralysis, <coughs> fasciculations, and it doesn't produce Babinski sign, for example. But today we have to talk about consciousness and coma, okay, and try to understand what happens in these patients. First of all, what is consciousness? Well, we have a definition, but that doesn't mean that it is what actually consciousness is, okay? Nobody knows where it 
leaves what is the site of consciousness in the brain. Okay. Is consciousness only in the brain or is also in other parts of the body? Nobody knows. Now, clinically, we don't need to enter into, a philo into the philosophical part or metaphysical part of this. Okay. We simply need to study what is important for the patient, clinically speaking, what we can test objectively. Okay. Consciousness uh, is simply to try to say it as simple as possible, a state in which we are aware, awake and aware of ourselves and every, every, everything else around us. Okay? And there are two dimensions or two aspects in consciousness, and these are arousal and awareness. Okay? How we test that? Well, we simply call the patient or the person, doesn't have to be a patient, or touch them, and they open their eyes. That means they are awake. Okay, how do we test awareness? Well, if they obey commands. Okay, that can be very simple, like a standoff. Okay, don't have to be very, very complicated, like having a, a test or something like that. Okay, simply they are aware, they have mental activity in which they receive an instruction and they act. Okay, according to that instruction. Now notice that they are processed in different places. Wakefulness or arousal is typically regulated and generated by this reticular activating system, brainstem. Okay, and those are different nuclei that connect brainstem, thalamus, hypothalamus with the cortex, okay, projecting different uh, networks of different connections and as I said before filtering stimuli determining what is important if it's worth it to be awake or not now there are different functions that you can see uh, remember all the different nuclei that we have in the brain stem autonomic centers cardio respiratory centers etc they help us maintain skeletal muscle tone posture balance integrate visual auditory information, okay? Also, we have there the respiratory centers, okay? Also, there are gates for modulation of pain, okay? Participate in the regulation of sleeping, okay? And help, for example, uh, pay attention to different stimuli and also to ignore repetitive, okay, stimuli. You may be at home, maybe studying, and there is a, maybe a neighbor that is playing the guitar, at the beginning you may be upset, but then you don't even feel that someone is doing any noise because your reticular activating system blocks all of the unnecessary information. And then we have cognition, okay, awareness, okay, all of the mental activities that we typically do, okay, that is a function of the cerebral cortex, okay, not the brain stem. Of course, one with, without the other won't do anything, but that is more a function of the uh, cerebral cortex, and more specifically, the prefrontal cortex and different cortical association areas that we have in the occipital, temporal, parietal lobes. Okay, these areas are going to be connected to each other, and at the same time, to different subcortical structures, the basal ganglia, okay, and the thalamus. So any damage to any of these areas, depending on what is their specific function, is going to manifest with different types of cognitive defects. We're going to see later 
more about this. So here we have the location of, on the left you see the reticular activating system, connections to the thalamus and the brain cortex. Okay, and here on the right side you see, for example, they are representing their auditory impulses, visual impulse, impulses, sensory impulses, touch, pain, temperature, how all of this sensory information is integrated in the reticular activating system and from there, there are projections to the thalamus and from the thalamus to the brain cortex. The thalamus, remember, is like the area that relays the information to where it should be sent. And of course, we take decisions and there are descending motor projections that tell us stand up or run away, depending on what the stimulus is. It's not the same that you wake up because your mom, your partner is in the room, or because there is a fire. So the motor response, of course, should be depending on what the stimulus is. So what can produce alteration in the level of consciousness? Many things, okay? Almost everything when it's exaggerated, okay? There are some structural disorders, trauma, bleeding, okay, different tumors, okay, different things that may be present there, the generative changes, atrophy of different structures, loss of myelin, metabolic disorders, hypoxia, hypoglycemia, hyponatremia, okay, kidney failure, accumulation of toxins, and also psychogenic. Okay, today we are going to try to learn, okay, how we know or have an idea of if the patient is in coma as a result of a structural, metabolic okay, disorder, or is simply a psychogenic problem that the patient has. Okay, for example, the patients uh, may be totally unconscious, they look like they are in coma, okay? and for example, you can do the, the oculocephalic reflex, may look like they have a damage in the brainstem, because it's positive, oh my goodness, this patient looks like they have brain stem damage. However, the blood pressure is normal, the pulse is normal, everything is normal. Nobody has a brain stem damage and a normal blood pressure, respiratory rate, and pulse. Okay? But that may happen in some psychogenical disorders. So here we have the etiology of coma. Okay? In the center, in these, uh, these two big uh, squares that have the blue border, you have the two main causes of coma. Okay, there has to be either a damage to both cerebral hemispheres or a damage to the reticular activating system. What can produce that? Well, all the things that you see there. Meningitis, encephalitis, for example, will create elevation of the intracranial pressure edema, when you have elevated intracranial pressure, there is little perfusion to the brain because the blood pressure has to increase, okay, to overcome the increased ICP, so that's going to create ischemia, but at the same time, there may be herniation of the brain, so different areas of the brain compress other structures, or maybe the brain tries to go down the foramen magnum, okay, and that will produce damage to both hemispheres. The same may happen as a result of a mass. A mass can be blood, a hematoma, or it can be a tumor. It's growing, growing, growing. And then we have other uh, causes. 
that may damage uh, the both brain hemispheres or the reticular activating system. And those are sepsis, brain toxins, cytokines, going all over the body, dyskinia, okay, hypoglycemia, uremia, hypoxia, different drugs, trauma, okay, mechanical trauma that may directly damage the reticular activating system. So that is trying to put in, a, in just one slide all the etiology. Of course, there are more possibilities. Uh, we don't want to make an overwhelming thing there. We're going to be talking about more specific things. But we need a break, OK? <laughs> Let's have a break uh, for 10 minutes, please. Only 10 minutes, today. some definitions now, okay, sometimes complicated to understand, so complicated that there are a couple of them that we are not going to even talk about, because the more you try to understand them, the more confused you get, okay, and well, there are different levels of alteration in the level of consciousness, okay, uh, up to now, Okay, you are used to say the patient is alert and oriented, time for, right? And alert, simply the patients are awake, oriented. Okay, they know where they are, what they are doing, they respond, etc. Okay, but let's try to understand a little bit what can be the outcomes of a patient that is in coma. Remember a patient that is in coma is a patient that is unaware and unawake. Okay, it's a state of non-arousal non-arousable, you can't wake up the patient, okay, and is totally unaware of themselves and the environment that we know. Okay? The other thing belongs to metaphysics and uh, movies. We are not going to enter in that. Only things that we can prove, okay, we are going to be talking about. So when patients are in coma, some of them may stay in coma forever or and die, of course, but some of them may progress. Okay, to something that we call uh, the minimally conscious state or the vegetative state. Okay, depending on the severity, comorbidities, age, etc. Okay, what is a vegetative state? What is a minimally conscious state? Notice that people in the vegetative state, uh, imagine the, the word vegetable is not proper for a human being, but gives us an idea of what's going on there. Okay, they can be awakened from coma. Okay, they open the eyes uh, spontaneously or when we stimulate them, you touch them and they open the eyes, but they are not aware. Okay, they open the eyes because they, the, the, the information, the sensory information is traveling to the brainstem. There is an activation of the reticular activating system and there is a release of glutamine that makes people open the eyes. But they don't know. They are not aware of that someone is touching them. Doesn't matter who is touching them. Can be the nurse, can be the PA, can be the physician, their mother, the, a cat, or maybe something that fell on them. Water, anything. They don't know what's going on. 
Now, there is another state that is called the minimally conscious state in which they show, and that is important, that to recognize in a vignette signs that are clearly discernible, that is evidence of awareness, okay? They are repeated, okay, on a reproducible basis, sustained basis, okay? For example, there may be many people in the room, and they may be with the op eyes open, but when their mother enters and talks to them, they may cry, smile, okay? They may react in a way that is evident that they are aware that that person is their mother or their husband, wife, etc. Okay, or someone who has a emotional a significance to that. That's the difference. They are minimally, we could say they are minimally aware okay, of their environment, and of course they can be awake. Now, there is a specific type of uh, syndrome that we placed it here because uh, we have to put it somewhere, okay? But we couldn't say that it's actually a coma or a type of coma. It's a syndrome that is called locked-in syndrome. And this is what usually happens when we correct very rapidly the hyponatremia, okay? That there is a, a damage, okay, to the brainstem, okay? More exactly, the pons, the anterior part of the pons, Okay, where we process most of the motor information, all of the actions that go from the motor cortex to the cranial nerves and to the rest of the body pass through the anterior part of the pons. If there is destruction of those actions, myelinolysis, okay, people are going to manifest with this syndrome, okay, quadriplegia and anartria. They don't speak, they don't move the arms, they don't move the legs. So they are unable to speak. Notice that it's anartria and it's, and it's not aphasia. <coughs> aphasia is what happens when there is a damage to the Wernicke's or Broca's area. Anartria is when they can't speak. Okay? Or dysartria, for example, when they have difficulty speaking, okay? because they have a problem in the hypoglossal nerve or the tongue or anything in the mouth or nerves. It's not something that is occurring in the cortex. Okay? Anartria and quadriplegia. Okay, this occurs because of acute vascular bilateral, that is difficult, bilateral uh, infarctions to the, to the pons or may occur as a result of this rapid correction of the hyponatremia. Okay, they are aroused and they are awake. That's why uh, we say this is not a coma properly but they have a selective loss of the efferent bandwidth. They can't speak, they don't move the face, they don't move the limbs. The only thing that they move is the eyes. Vertical or lateral eye movement, sometimes blinking. Okay, because this nuclei that, uh, of the nerves that innervate, okay, the muscles of the eyes, etc., are above that area. Okay, so they are not affected typically for this. So main how sad that is, okay, they are aware of everything, okay, but they can't express anything except yes, no, or different the quality language that you can develop by blinking or moving the eyes. So this is a diagram on the left that you can see the different outcomes. Okay, someone who got an acute brain injury, for example, they may enter in coma for a while, 
and there are different outcomes. Okay, they may, get, may go out of the coma and be totally healthy. That's possible too. Or they may develop this lock-in syndrome or a chronic coma or brain death. Okay, but there is another progression that you see there in the center. Okay, they may enter into the vegetative state. Notice that people may remain in a permanent vegetative state. Okay, and we define that when they spend more than three months okay, in non-traumatic causes, let's say poisoning or a severe hypoxemia, hypoglycemia, are extended for a while of hypoperfusion, or more than one year if they develop the coma as a result of trauma. We wait one year to say oh, they are in a permanent vegetative state. From the vegetative state, people may enter into this better uh, type of coma that is the uh, minimally conscious state and may get better, okay, go to the confusional state, they start remembering things, remembering people, you have seen movies about this, and then they may get, may get well, evolving independence. What is the functional MRI? Okay, notice on the top left, a conscious person, healthy person, that is where we have the, the highest amount of blood, okay, in this area between the occipital and parietal lobe, okay. Notice the locked-in syndrome, almost the same, a little bit less blood. And compare that to the vegetative, zero blood, and the minimally conscious, like three spots with some little circulation there. Not a reversible process, right? So it's all treatment here. Theoretically, there should be. Okay, talking about this central protein myelinolysis, the myelin collapses and axon are destroyed. I wouldn't say no, not at all, but not that I know. Now, what is the difference between brain death, cerebral uh, death? Okay, brain death, uh, by definition, is a lack of cerebral hemispheres, cortex, and brainstem. Everything is gone. Okay, loss of every stem reflexes that has to be demonstrated, uh, the continuous, uh, continuous cessation of respiration, okay, uh, spontaneous, of course, not when the patient is in a ventilator. Okay, of course, we have to rule out hypothermia, drugs, electrolyte, endocrine disturbances to say that someone is actually dead, that the brain is not working anymore and the brainstem. Okay, there are different causes okay, that we already mentioned. Okay, increase intracranial pressure, herniation, anoxia, hypoxia. And then cerebral death is something different. Okay, cerebral death is when someone has irreversible coma Okay, because of damage to the brain hemispheres, but the brain stem is intact. Okay, so they are gonna, we assess the brain stem reflexes, ocular, uh, motor, or vestibular reflexes, and they are intact. Okay, we are gonna mention something about this later. Okay, that is called irreversible coma. The brain hemispheres are not gonna be able to work anymore. And of course, we wait, of course, remember when you go here, 
Okay, people may develop a chronic coma. They are not even in a vegetative state. Okay, chronic coma, or maybe they're in a permanent vegetative state. Okay, for many years. Now, this is the definition of coma that we already mentioned: state of being unarousable and uh, unresponsive. It's a state of unarousable unresponsiveness, as it sounds. Okay, there are different causes that we mentioned. Okay, and what else we have there? Is there anything new? Well, some cl uh, clinical criteria. Okay, for example, we test that there is a deficiency in the arousal systems when they don't open the eyes, they are not aware, must persist for one hour or more. Okay, syncope, okay, concussion, Okay, the loss of consciousness typically lasts for less than one hour. Okay, and they recover. Okay, recovery should start in two to four weeks and may not go further than these uh, vegetative minimally conscious, so there is nothing new here. Now, let's talk about the clinical findings and also a couple of more definitions. Okay, remember categorizing the patients, what type of confusion they have, what type of coma they have is difficult. That's why we are not going to talk about lethargy or obtundation, because they are very confusing. For some people, what is lethargy for some, for some is obtundation for the other. Okay, but just understand that they are like a progression, confusion, lethargy, obtundation. And then we get to the more severe ones. Stupor, okay, stupor is the condition in which there is unresponsiveness, but the patient can be aroused using vigorous stimuli. Okay, now what is obtundation and lethargy? Less vigorous, and, but what is vigorous for you? Okay, yeah, but how, how you do it? You can do it very softly or very deeply. How, how, how vigorous you did? Oh yeah, very vigorous. How do I know? How can I believe what I see there? Okay, so the Glasgow coma scale, maybe it's better. It's, it's complicated. Okay, I need you to understand the difference between stupor and coma. Simply, when there is a vigorous physical stimulus, only, the only thing that wakes them up, okay, versus coma, that is not even that. Okay, and from that, from there, they may progress to brain death. Now, notice you have there the Glasgow coma scale, not necessarily that you memorize the Glasgow comma scale. You have it there as a reference. Okay, normally uh, there are different uh, points there. Okay, minor brain injuries from 13 to 15. Okay, moderate from 9 to 12, severe from 3 to 8. And then you have there some things that may happen, for example, when you forcefully stimulate someone. Someone is in coma and you apply a very vigorous stimulus and they, are, they don't wake up, they are not uh, in a stupor, they are in coma. Three things may happen that gives us an idea of the prognosis of that. For example, the worst thing that may happen is the one that you see at the end. You stimulate them and they are totally flaccid and don't move at all. That has the worst prognosis, okay? That occurs and that tells you that the brainstem is not responding at all. Doesn't matter if you are putting a knife on, on a, 
or stabbing them with a knife. They don't respond. Now, there are other two outcomes when you forcefully, vigorously stimulate them. One is the decorticate posture, and the other is the decerebrate posture. Okay, there are two pictures later. Maybe they are here, yeah. This is the decorticate, and this is the decerebrate. Notice that the decorticate is flexing the arms and the, and the hands and the wrists, while the decerebrate is extending the arms, okay, it's more, and the feet. Okay, what is the meaning of that? Okay, the decorticate posturing tells you, okay, that there is hemispheric damage, okay, but the brainstem function in the motor centers in the brainstem is intact. Okay, there are different nuclei, okay, in the, in the brainstem. These nuclei belong to what we call the extrapyramidal pathway. So we have some of them in the upper part of the brainstem. Okay, these upper brainstem nuclei, okay, that normally facilitate flexion are intact. So when you stimulate them, they flex all the body, all the limbs. Is that damage to the inhibitory cells? Damage to the, up, the uh, no, the, to the lower, to the, to the brain, uh, to the hemispheres. The brainstem is intact. Okay, so they respond by flexing. Now, when there is a decerebrate posturing, now the upper brainstem, the one that permits flexion, is damaged. Okay, so what they do is extension. They have preserved the lower part of the brainstem. Okay, so they extend. But when they have the total brainstem damage, they don't do either flexion or extension. They are totally flaccid. Okay, so decorticate, the brainstem is okay. Decerebrate, the upper part of the brainstem is damaged. Okay, but the lower part is okay. And when they have total flexibility, they don't move at all, is the entire brainstem is affected. And of course, this is not the only thing that is going to be found. Remember, respiratory centers, cardiovascular centers, so there is going to be more to this. Now, what is a, a, a good sign when you stimulate them? Eye opening, grimacing, okay, when they withdraw from pain per, it, with purpose, you stimulate their right arm and they only move the right arm, okay, they move away from pain, okay, the consciousness is not greatly impaired. There is a symmetric motor response to pain, deep tendon reflexes are working. Okay, that indicates more a focal lesion rather than a problem that is affecting the entire brain or the brainstem. Okay, there you have the, the pictures, the corticate, the description. Okay, lesions above the midbrain and the red nucleus. So the brainstem is okay. It's the dying cephalus, the one that is affected. Hemispheres and thalamus is the dying cephalus. Sorry, the, 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 the hemispheres. Okay, the dysfunction goes down, they have the decerebrate, extension, okay, midbrain, bones, lesions. And when the medulla is affected, of course, we are going to see the flaccidity and some cardiorespiratory deficiency. Now, what about the respiratory patterns? Also, will be different depending on the location of the lesions. 
Okay, notice that there we have different types of respirations. Okay, we have the A and the C, chain stocks and biot, or ataxic respiration. Okay, both of these occur when there is a dysfunction of both hemispheres, so cortical lesions, bilateral. Okay, then we have other, for example, the B has the, is the apneustic breathing. Notice that the apneustic breathing is, there is a full inspiration and then a pause of three seconds or so. Okay, there is an inspiratory gap. Okay, these are lesions in the pons or medulla. And this will progress to respiratory arrest. So that is a bad thing. And below, you have the central neurogenic hyperventilation. Notice that it's like a non-stop. Okay, up, down, up, down. Okay, more than 25 breaths per minute. That indicates midbrain or upper pons. Okay, that's midbrain or upper pons. I wish they had organized this better from top to bottom, yeah, like mixing things there. It's okay, just for you to see. Now, more clinical findings. And probably you're going to understand many things that you do in, in PD, sometimes without knowing what are these, what, what is this for? Why am I doing this? Okay, just to, you know, to spend time here. Now, what about the pupils? We study, we analyze the pupils, if they are symmetric or not, if they respond or not. Okay, notice that the pupils can be either fixed or there can be preserved pupillary reflexes. Why is that useful in a patient in coma? For example, fixed pupils from very early in the coma indicates structural lesions, while when there is a metabolic or toxic process, okay, the Pupillary reflexes are preserved until very late in the coma. So that also makes a difference, structural versus metabolic or toxic. Okay, what else? Oculocephalic reflex, the doll's, the, uh, the, the doll's eye. Okay, if, if we are with the eyes open and someone moves our eyes to the left, the eyes are not gonna rotate with the head. They typically lag behind and then go there. That only happens if the brainstem is working. Well, that's not something that we do. That is a reflex. Okay? Now, this uh, reflex is assessing the oculo-vestibular pathway. There is a coordination between the visual, the, between the eyes and the vestibulum, okay, to keep the eyes in the position and then move the eyes in the new direction. It will be absent, for example, when there is a brain death, and the brain is, brain stem is not working, of course, but notice this, I, I think I told you this before, maybe absent in psychogenic unresponsiveness, they perform conscious visual fixation. Okay, patient who is in coma, you move the head and they're gonna move the eye with the head. But they do it conscious. So we have to be aware. They're gonna see how well, I told you that at the beginning, uh, these people are going to have normal blood pressure, normal respiratory rate, normal pulse. The viral signs are going to be okay. Now, what if your patient, what if you can do the oculocephalic reflex? What if your patient has uh, any lesion in the neck? You don't want to do that, you know? Or the patient is in any condition that you can do that. 
Well, there is another test that is the oculocaloric reflex. Okay? You put cold liquid in the ear. Okay? And there can be different things. For example, both eyes deviate towards the irrigated ear. That's normal. Try to do it to someone that you know. What are they going to do? What are you? The eyes look at that place. Okay? But that is a reflex. That is actually a reflex. It's not something that we do consciousness. That tells you that the brain stem is intact. That is the, uh, uh, that, so yes, mildly impaired consciousness. So it's a, not a very bad thing when the eyes both move here to the irrigated side. Now, nystagmus, because one thing is the eyes moving, but also there should be nystagmus Okay, away from the irrigated ear. That means I move here and the first component goes to the other ear. There is another outcome. Patient is conscious and there is a psychogenic unresponsiveness. See how we have different techniques to know if the patient is lying to us? Okay, that is, I don't know if Professor Santos has done this with you in PD yet? She will do one day. They're going to explore these. Uh, the coconut. <laughs> yeah, they're going to see the nystagmus. That is what happens. That is the normal response. Then, what is the other outcome? Eyes do not move, or the eyes move non conjugated. It's not Billy Rubin, it's disconjugated <laughs> eye movements. Okay? Now, what is the, how do we interpret when the eyes are moving in, a, in every possible direction, okay, as they will? Uncertain integrity of the brainstem, deeper coma, and the prognosis is not very good. And you, even without studying medicine, you may imagine how we would feel when someone is having these uh, eyes moving in the, any direction, each of them. Now, what else? Put this together, the nystagmus away from the irrigated eye, with this absent motor response, normal muscle tone, deep tendon reflexes, and vital signs. There is nothing wrong there. Okay, this person doesn't want to go to school. Okay. What else? Hyperthermia or hypothermia? That opens another uh, differential diagnosis, for example, Stimulants, overdose, heat stroke, infection, neuroleptic malignant syndrome. Hypothermia may appear in sepsis in the elderly. Remember, the elderly typically doesn't develop fever. They have more hypothermia. Okay, environmental exposure to cold, near drowning, sedative overdose. Okay, notice a stimulant overdose, hyperthermia, sedative overdose, hypothermia. Severe hypothyroidism and Wernicke's encephalopathy. Remember Wernicke's Korsakoff syndrome? Okay, alcohol abuse, deficiency of thiamine, damage of the mammillary bodies. If we don't treat with thiamine and sugar, they are going to develop Korsakoff syndrome, irreversible. Then if you find needle marks, maybe overdose of opioids, other drugs, or insulin, okay, depending on the breath order, Maybe ketoacidosis, maybe alcohol intoxication, 
If there are blood pressure, false anomalies, thinking, hypoperfusion, cardiac problems, arrhythmias, okay, it's, gone, it's becoming easier, the differential. Now, if they have uh, skin lesions, purpura, for example, or gangrene, sepsis, purpura may appear in different, for example, meningococcal meningitis, they may have petechial or purpuric lesions, presence of fever too, and then asterixis or multifocal clonus. Okay, clonus sometimes is a part of epilepsy, okay, but clonus occurs only in one side of the body, one arm maybe, doing weird movements, but if they have one arm, then the other arm, then one leg, then the face, and also asterixis, that is found in uremia, okay, hepatic encephalopathy, hypoxic encephalopathy, or drug toxicity. That is the four things that may produce asterixis. So trying to put things together, how we do the differential diagnosis? Where is the lesion? How, what is producing the lesion? Okay, we have here certain things. Notice that there are a couple of them that have an asterisk. Nothing to do with asterisks. This is this note here. Okay, because is uh, sometimes we tend to think that we are going to find all that in all patients. That's not true. Okay. What happens when there is a bilateral hemispheric damage? The response is going to be symmetric. There's going to be a symmetric tone, either hyper or hypotonic response, flexor, extensor to pain. Okay, myoclonus is possible, and they are going to have periodic cycling of breathing. Mass, for example, tumors or hematomas. Okay, above the tentorium of the cerebellum, okay, the meninges, the dura mater, has two folds that divide the hemispheres from the cerebellum, the posterior fossa. It's called the tentorium of the cerebellum. So any mass above that is going to, for example, we're going to see that later in more detail. It's going to compress, it's going to, it's going to have a progression. It's going to compress first the tercranial nerve, Okay, then it's going to grow more and it's going to produce, for example, a fixed pupil, oculomotor, paresis, contralateral, homonymous, hemianopia. They are going to have different things. We are going to see that in more detail when we study the increase in tracranial pressure and brain herniation syndromes. Brainstem lesions are going to have this decorticate or decerebrate rigidity. Okay, hyperventilation, for example, uh, the one that we saw in the breathing patterns, the one at the end, that it was very fast, very fast, more than 25 breaths per minute. And uh, what about midbrain? Okay, upper brain stem, pupils locked in mid position, unequal in size, so anisocoria, loss of light reflexes. Okay, they lose the sympathetic and parasympathetic pupillary tone completely. Okay, so there you have the hemispheric damage, supratensorial that we are going to go in more detail, brainstem and midbrain. And when there is a toxic metabolic dysfunction, okay, spontaneous conjugate, rubbing of the eyes in mild coma, fixed eye position in deeper coma, 
abnormal oculovestibular reflex, multifocal clonus asterixis, may have also the decorticate, decerebrate uh, postures, okay, but depending on what, what is the degree of the damage. Okay, try to get the, the, the big idea from there. Of course, together with other things that we have mentioned before. Uh, this is gonna be for the next. Okay, we're not talking, talking too much today. Okay, we want to talk about this at the end, like in a rush. Thank you, Dr.